Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, a podcast wherein I interview performers, promoters, fans and most especially comedians about what comedy actually is and what it means to them, through shows they've seen, through their own experiences or if they wish, through expressive dance, although I appreciate that might not work on an audio medium. In full disclosure I should say this is the first of two episodes because I realised this ceased to be an interview quite early on and was in fact a discussion about comedy between two friends, perhaps in rocking chairs maybe by a fireplace. And in all honesty, we just kept talking. I don't know anyone who makes you feel that comfortable that quickly, more than stand-up comedian Rich Wilson. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Hey, good, you? Yeah, really good. Great to see you. And you, mate. We can just jump right in if you're happy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Okay, brilliant. How did you make your start in comedy? And more than that, how you stay in comedy? <laughs> The staying bit is becoming more and more difficult as we go along. Um, yeah. But the to get getting into it, um, I've I never in a million years thought I'd be a stand-up comedian. I never I never had any thoughts about it. I it it used to fill me with dread whenever whenever I'd read an interview with a comic or someone famous, and they used to talk about stand-up comedy and they go, "It's the hardest thing in the world." Just the thought of it used to make me want to want to puke. I was like, I couldn't think of anything worse. I'm fundamentally, I'm quite a shy person, so it's taken comedy has helped me with that. It's helped my confidence no end. Yeah. Like, when to to this because it's still like I can't make phone calls. I hate making phone calls. I have to like walk around the room about twenty times and then just go, just do it, just make the call because I'm just <laughs> terrified of it. But so to be stood in front of strangers trying to get trying to make them laugh is 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 bananas. But I ended up, I worked up the creek uh, in in Greenwich. Yeah. And I used to watch, I used to love comedy. I got, I'm the oldest one in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really have any sort of influences from older siblings. But I had uh, my next door neighbor, Alan, Alan and Tommy Costin, and Julie as well, actually. Julie was more about music. Um, they were, mm-hmm. uh, but I sort of like, they were, they felt like family. And they used to sort of like, I just get their hand me down clothes and albums they used to tell me about all these things like remember julia uh, julie telling me about toya you know when i was a kid <laughs> and then my next door neighbor alan gave me a cassette of eddie murphy delirious mm-hmm. and i he just and he just said he goes he goes i'll oh, take this take this and i remember going home and he just said he goes there's loads of swearing on it loads of swearing so i'm like right so i had this stereo that my dad had given me and uh and then uh, you know, i don't know the ones with a cassette on it as well yeah it sounded amazing and I had headphones on in my bedroom and I put Eddie Murphy on. And honestly, I had never heard anything like it in my life. It, yeah. it just took my head off. Because up until then, it had been Mike Yarwood yeah. and, you know, sort of very, very light entertainment, Cannon and Ball, Morecambe and Wise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sort of, Billy Connolly was kind of the the edgiest. But even that was, even that, that was like the edgiest it could get, you know? Yeah. So... To hear someone like that talking about the things that he did, it just just blew me away. And so, <laughs> and I and then I got a mate of mine, Tom, and I've known Tom since I was three. Like we're still mates now. Mm. And Tom, there's only a couple of months difference, but Tom always felt like an older brother as well. And he would always. He, I remember him saying, "Have you heard? Of, you heard of this guy, Lee Evans? Have you heard of this guy, Bill Hicks?" And he introduced me to all these things and to, and 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 uh, hip hop and things like that. So I had all those influences going on. And then and then I remember talking to someone about Eddie Murphy and then they were, well, you mm. know, that's Richard Pryor. 
And I'm like, what? The dude from Superman 3? They're like, yeah, he's, a, <laughs> he's one of the finest comedians that's ever lived. And I'm like, really? So we're going back and finding old recordings. I can't remember where I found them. But listening to old recordings of him going, what? what is this? There was the old, there yeah. was the, the videos, um, live from Sunset Strip or whatever it is. And those, they were still around. So I remember, I remember watching them and just going, wow. And then from that, you find out about Lenny Bruce and you find out about Cosby back in the day. Bob Newhart, a big Bob Newhart is a huge influence. I love Bob Newhart so much. You know, the inventor of the first, that one-sided conversation, you know, mm. like on the phone. So the, the, the driving instructor is one of the best things that's ever been written. <laughs> so so all of these things kind of were gathering up. Like, and I didn't really realise it. I was just like, I just loved comedy. And then I remember once being out with Tom and a few others from school. And we, were, we used to play this game with an American football. We used to just throw it at each other. I remember we were all bundling, and I can't remember what I said, but the whole the whole pile of boys just fell apart laughing, and I just hit this rhythm, and I, everything I said, they just could not stop laughing, and I thought that feels amazing, but I didn't, I didn't again. I was like, I like to make people laugh. That was it. Yeah. And it wasn't until working up the creek. I remember I'd just come out of a breakup, really horrible breakup with a girl, Kate, and um, and I worked. I was working at funeral directors as well, and it was January two thousand and one. It was bleak. It was, it was bleak, man. And I'm like, oh, this is shocking. I need, I need something. And I remember sitting in the canteen at the, at the funeral directors. I just happened to be flicking through the local paper. And there was a, a full page advert for bar staff at Up the Creek. And I'd yeah. never been. I'd never even seen it. I just, I just, the girl Kate that I would been, I'd been hanging around with. I remember she telling me about it as she'd been. And I'd been to the comedy store back in like 1998 and I'd seen Bill Bailey and people like that, but I didn't know there was a circuit of just, you know, comics you've never heard of. Right. But I rang up, I rang up as soon as I saw, and I, I bear in mind, I've just said to you, I don't like making phone calls. I I went, I'm, <laughs> I'm ringing that, I'm making that phone call. So I rang and I went, and I, I don't know who I spoke, I, I found out later it was Drew, one of the owners. And um, he just said, he said, right, he goes, come and see me tomorrow night. He goes, be here. 7.30. All right. All right, cool. So so I get there and uh, he walks me in. He meets me outside. I walk in. He goes, right, this is where this is where the comedy is. We're in the main room. Um, he goes, this is where it all happens in here. He goes, all the people come in and blah, blah, blah. He walked me through to the bar. He went, this is the bar. Um, he goes, and, that, and they, these have been the people. He goes, and he goes, can you pull a pint? I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I used to work at the Lazy Toad in Beckenham uh, a couple of years ago. And he went, all right. He goes, cool. I'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. So that was yeah, the Friday. Yeah. And he said, oh, you're welcome to sit and, you know, stay and watch the comedy if you wish. He goes, but we'll, we'll see you tomorrow night. And I was like, was that, that's it. The whole thing lasted from me walking into the front door to the bar. And then that was it. That was the end of the interview. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I just was like, all right. And I remember I watched a bit of the comedy. Daniel Kitson was, was emceeing. Yeah. And I was just like, straight away, I was like, I'm so excited. This is going to be amazing. And that was it. So the next day I turn up, I start my shift and it it became one of the best jobs I've ever had. It was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, and, it, and then I got sort of friendly with comedians coming through and having conversations with them, like Michael Smiley, uh, Silky, uh, Rob yep. Rouse, uh, you know, Steve Hughes, all these people would come through. And then I remember Rob Rouse one day just said, he goes, you should do this. I think you'd be good at this. 
I'm like, oh, I don't know, I don't know about that. He went, no, no. He goes, you've got, you, what he said was, you've got, you've got a glint in your eye. And I think you'll, I think you'll be able to do it. I was like, all right, all right, maybe. So that sort of set, that sort of sowed a seed. I didn't really think much of, much of it. And I became friends yeah. with Silky, and he and I used to like hang out together. And I remember sitting in this nightclub in Maidstone because I used to run up the creek when it was in Maidstone. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in this nightclub with him, having a few drinks, and he just said, we got talking about it, and he said, your first gig is going to be on this date in October. It's in two months' time, and you can't back out. And I was like, <laughs> ah, right. So I spent two months shitting my pants. And that's <laughs> it. That was me doing comedy. And so I just got, I just sort of fell into it. I didn't, I didn't have any aspirations or any dreams of being a comic. I just, it just ended up that way. It was obviously meant to be. Frightening. Yeah. <laughs> Madness. And it's interesting because you mentioned Silky, that, um, uh, Paul White. Yeah, he's a really nice guy, a super yeah. fine, generous man. I would say that you are a very generous and modest man yourself. Is that why you hang out together? Do do birds of a feather flock together? Is that how it is on the circuit? Yeah, that we're very, we are. We do. Like, when it started, I think he saw me as sort of a project, very much a sort of Eliza Doolittle <laughs> kind of thing. I think, yeah, when we first met. I hadn't really experienced much of the world. I was a dad at 20. So I was kind of just doing jobs just to make sure the kids were sorted out. And then, so I hadn't really experienced much of the world. And then I met him and it, it, he kind of tapped into what was what I knew was in me. Like I grew up surrounded by good music, by literature. My dad was a, was a huge reader. So there were always books everywhere. My mum and dad always into music. So we weren't shut off from things. But I think when you're a teenager and you're growing up, you kind of, you go with what's fashionable and what your mates are into. So you become quite quite closed off to a lot of stuff. And I think meeting him yeah. sort of unlocked it unlocked it. And I was like, yeah, I wanna I wanna start doing that. I want you know, it, it gave me the confidence to start being more honest with what I was into and the things I wanted to read and the films I wanted to watch. And yeah. And it, and it yeah, he and I we're very much like R two D two and C three PO. Right, <laughs> exactly what we're like, and it really makes me laugh. And um, yeah, I think I got to thank him for because without him, I wouldn't be doing it. He got me started in this, and he's done yeah. that to a lot of people. He's, he does comedy courses, and he's you know he's helping people come out of their shell. A lot of the, I've seen the, some of the people on his courses, yeah, and they're all the people that they're quite socially awkward. They're, they're quite socially inept. You know, they haven't. You know, they they're good people, but they just haven't had a chance. To, to, to get involved with other people they can't for whatever reason and he kind of yeah. brings them all together and it becomes more of a social club rather than just a comedy course it's a really nice thing that he does yeah so he and I and now what's happened is it's kind of flipped so now I'm kind of teaching Silky how to be a bit more at one with the world <laughs> sometimes I'm like mate because he'll walk through Leeds on a Saturday night and he's got his hat and he's got greetings you're like mate you're going to get your head punched in <laughs> Don't be, don't be saying greetings in a kebab shop on a Saturday night in Leeds. So now we've gone. So now we've like flipped, and we're kind of teaching each other the ways of the world. But he's a good lad, yeah, Paul. Funny boy, yeah. We've been we've, we've been very pissed many times. <laughs> Lovely, yeah. Uh, I remember I was at um, the Black Horse in Alston. Oh, great gig! I love that gig. Fantastic I love place. That gig. It's one of the best in the country. I saw him uh, 2019, a part of the Leicester Festival, doing a show there. Uh, I come out of the show and I'm waiting for a cab back into town. And he, he pulls up alongside me in his car and offers me a ride back into town. Don't know me from Adam. Never met <laughs> me before. 
<laughs> it's like, you want to, where are you going? You go back to town, do you want a lift? I'm like, genuinely, oh. I've got a cab like two minutes away. But, you know, I thought that's that's generosity. Just stop to a guy in the street. I thought I could have been anybody. In fairness, I mean, if you look at me, you know, I really couldn't have been anybody. But you know what I mean? <laughs> He's a funny one. I remember he was on the phone and he's in his car. It was in a car. You said this this VW Jetta, a Bora, that's what it was. And it had kind of like a body kit on it, which is quite unusual for him. And um, he's on the phone and I could hear him talking. To him. I went, who are you talking to? And he went, oh, there's a car that they want me to pull over and have a, have a chat about the car. I went, don't, don't pull over. Keep going. What are you doing? They're going to nick your car. <laughs> so he's, sometimes he's quite naive. He goes, oh, they want to have a chat. I'm like, no, mate. They're going to jack your car. <laughs> But yeah, bless him. He's a good lad. And that that pub in Alston, run by beautiful, beautiful people, is just it's a, yeah. it's a fantastic gig. And they love comedy so much; it really makes a difference when you go to a venue, and the and the people behind the venue give a shit about the gig that's on. It makes so much. Yeah. It's beautiful, and I will gig for them whenever. I will. I would. I would bloody. I die for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shout out to the loft aloft. Bloody right. Um, yeah, and what you're saying now, I know exactly what you mean because I've been to, I mean, many hundreds of gigs, mm. and um, some places you go to like the Black Horse, and they're completely behind the comedy. That's they love it. That's what they're all about. Yeah. And then I've been to other gigs, even quite recently, where you don't even know the gig is on. No. It has to travel by word of mouth because there's, all they've got is like a board inside the pub or whatever, and you're going, "Well, you've got comedy." Uh, don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, well, it's nothing on your website. It's nothing on your Insta or anything. Uh, and you're like, this is the no thing. one knows. They, if the venue's behind it, it works so well. And it, it's a shame because sometimes there's a, there's a gig I did last night for Comedy Beats, which is Windsor. A guy called Windsor, not the place. And um, yeah. him, and his, him and his gang, they run some brilliant, brilliant gigs. And this one's at the Grasshopper, which is in Crawley. And it's one of the best gigs going. I remember doing it a couple of years ago before all the pandemic and that. And it, I remember turning up, and I said this last night when I was on stage. When you get there, it's like a it's a pub on a on a council estate, and it's next to a parade of shops. It's like a classic council estate pub. And I remember pulling up in a car and looking at it, and I'm like, absolutely not. This is going to be this mm. going to be horrendous. What the fuck is this? But I went in, and I went to the and the gig was one of the best gigs in my 18 year career that I have ever done. It was. It was sensational. All the people in there were brilliant. The people in the pub are brilliant. The people that own yeah. the pub are brilliant. But what's been happening over the last couple of months? It's been it's it, you know people are struggling to to, to you know to, to afford tickets, so it's yeah. kind of dying a little bit. But what's happening is the pub are taking the hit because they're behind the gig, yeah. But they're lose but they're losing money, and so you know. So last night I was talking to them, and they went, they were like, "Yeah, we don't we don't know if it's going to be here in the new year because." They wow. just can't afford. They just can't afford it. They're losing a couple hundred quid a month, and they're like, "We could hire this out for yeah. private functions." And so, and so, it's a shame that they really want it, but they can't afford it. And that's that's going to be really interesting in the next couple of months when the energy crisis goes away. It does, and, and you know, yeah, something has to give. But if anyone's listening to this and you're in the Crawley area, you have to support that gig, the Grasshopper. It's a fucking great gig. It'd be a real shame if it went, you know. But um, what was it? I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> what was the question? I don't know. I can't remember Doesn't where we were. We just went off on one. Sorry. Doesn't matter. No, all the better. All the better. If you've got something to say, that's what I want to hear. Um, so big up the grasshopper. Why big not? up the grasshopper. Um, you talked about comedy courses there. Um, that's come up a lot on this podcast and obviously the one that Silky runs. Have you ever done a course yourself? Do you know what? 
when I started, I when there, there was talk of competitions, and there, I started in two thousand and four, so I started pretty late, and um, right. I was thirty two when I started, and I remember they were talking about the um, uh, what is it? Say so think you're funny and amuse moose and all that. Yeah. And I was like, well, surely comedians don't do all that. That's like selling out, I thought. I thought, oh, yeah, you're doing competitions, you're selling out. That You just got to keep it pure, right? And same with writing courses, comedy courses. I was like, well, who's doing yeah. that? I said, you even know how to do it or you don't or you learn You learn on the job. You learn how you go. Yeah. So I didn't do any of that. And it's not until later on I found out everyone has done a comedy course. Everyone's done <laughs> the competitions. And I haven't. And I'm like, oh, I made work for myself again. Like Mickey yeah. Flanagan, Greg Davis, um, all of them, Rod Gilbert, Jimmy Carr, yeah. loads of people. They've all done comedy courses. I was like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I never did I never did it. I did what did I do? I think I did Amuse Moose and I I, I didn't get in and then they messaged me and said, Oh, you're going through like a wild card or something like that. But I only ever got as far as like the second the second round. So I never got anywhere. But yeah, I just made it. I made it really hard for myself, like a dickhead. I should have just. <laughs> what's wrong with me? I do that all the time. I'm always kicking myself in the nuts when I should be getting on. With it. <laughs> so no, I've never done it. I've never done it. Uh, you know, I've been to Silky's. I've sat at the back and watched him. Yeah, quite interesting. But yeah, I've never, yeah. never done. I've sort of picked it up as I've gone along. You know, I've done my own course. Mm -hmm. We had all the when the lockdowns were happening and then a few people were saying to me, you should do a course. You should, you should teach. You'd be able to do it. And it was yeah. funny. It got, we got there in the end and we worked it out and it was great. And we had a really nice time. But I remember at the beginning when they first talked about it, I'm like, I don't know how I do it. How am I going to tell anyone how to do it? <laughs> it's because you don't know. You, you see, well, it's all, everyone's an individual and you come at it a different way. Like some people will write for two hours a day and yeah. throw most of it in the bin. And I, but I can't, I can't see it. And with a blank piece of paper, go, right, I'm going to write comedy today. It just doesn't work for me like that. I have yeah. to be off washing the car or cleaning the oven or doing something else, like pairing my socks. And then all these ideas yeah. are coming, or I'm doing something else. Or I get a lot of ideas for music. I'll be listening, I listen to a lot of music, and I'll go, oh, that's quite funny. And I'll make a note. And so yeah. to be teaching it, I don't, it's a, it's a tricky one. I, I, if someone wants their help, what's my help? I'll, I'll help people now and I'll go, look, we'll have a chat and then we'll figure it out. But just, yeah, to sit and write stuff and then teach someone else how to do it, I find really difficult. So, yeah, you know, I think you know, I think you, the thing is, you can't. If you're funny, you're funny. You can't really. You can teach someone how to tell a joke. Yeah, like Jimmy Carr, I'm like Bob Monkhouse as well. I was told about. I, I did a gig with um, Ted Robbins. Yeah, did a gig with Ted Robbins. Ah, oh, mate, what a fascinating dude. He, he worked with everyone. So he came in. We was at the green room. was in Stockport for uh, Math Brown off the curb. Um, uh, uh, outside the box. That's it. Yeah. Ted Robbins comes in. And I can hear him in, I can hear him coming through. <laughs> Bear in mind, we've never met. I can hear him. He's going, is that Wilson? Can I see his form? <laughs> and he comes in. He's already got a flute full of champagne. And he comes in. <laughs> and he's chatting away like we've known, like proper old school lovey like proper you know ah oh, darling <laughs> hello darling how are you hello it's a it's a real honor to meet you ted he's like ah yes my boy and he starts telling me all these stories all the other young lads like the young lads that are there we're all sort of gathered around he starts telling stories about les dawson about tommy cooper 
all the greats that he's worked with. And I was like, oh my God, this is like one of the last remaining connections to that old that old world that we grew up we grew up with. Yeah. And then I noticed the other acts kind of like, they kind of like went off and they were sort of chatting in the corner about whatever they were doing. I'm like, you should be talking to this guy. You should be, he was telling me about Les Dawson, Tommy Cooper. He told me about <laughs> Bob Monkhouse. About Bob Monkhouse he used to drink half a bottle of brandy before he went on. How mad is that? <laughs> what? Did he? he went, yeah, he was battered. <laughs> Bob Monkhouse didn't know. Bob Monkhouse wasn't naturally funny. Bob Monkhouse, was, he learned how to write and perform jokes. Yeah. He learned the timing, but he wasn't necessarily a naturally funny dude. And you, and I found that mm. fascinating that, that someone like that, someone on that level, like Jimmy Carr, Jimmy Carr, again, not necessarily naturally funny, but a yeah. craftsman when it comes to joke writing and delivery. Yeah. So, you know, I've been very lucky to meet these people and it's, it's yeah, when you meet people like that, you go, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amazing, huh? I think that's one of the interesting things because like you said there about some of the, the classics, these were people, they wouldn't run around on stage. They, their comedy didn't come from physical comedy. It was very much about standing still in front of a microphone and just delivering. And the yeah. magic in that delivery means that they're, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, we still remember them talking about them with reverence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that ability to stand there and just rely on the words, like you just said, is mm. something that I I'm too, I worry too much about getting to the punchline. I worry <laughs> about, I don't want to bore people. And I want to, so I'm always bouncing around and I'm quite animated with what I do. But I remember Tom stayed, I remember Tom stayed, stayed at my house, Canadian comic. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't working that night. This is when I started, and he just went. He goes, "What are you doing?" I went, "Well, I'm, I've got to go to Stafford, to Staffordshire, to do this gig." He goes, "Well, I'll come with you." He goes, "Have you got a video camera?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> I goes, he goes, "I'll come with you. We'll video it." And I'm like, "What? What?" Anyway, we go. We do this gig. He videos it. We come back. We go to. I was living in this house with a with a uh, my ex partner Marilyn, beautiful mm-hmm. woman. Again, she was another one that. Without her, I wouldn't be doing comedy. She was so supportive and amazing. Mm. She was she was fantastic, and and without her, like I say, I wouldn't be doing. I wouldn't have gone on to do what I was doing. And I remember sitting around the fire. We had this we had this like proper fire. We sat around that, and Tom went right. Let's put on let's put on your video. I'm like, oh, we don't have to watch it now. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we had a few beers. He's like, yeah, let's put it on, let's put it on. <laughs> so we sat and we watched it. And it wasn't great, you know, it was all right. I was an open spot, so it wasn't, it was all right. Mm-hmm. It was what it was. And then he went, yeah. right, let's put on Richard Pryor. And I'm like, like the famous one, <laughs> the famous video. I'm like, oh, mate, fuck, no, come on, man. You can't, you can't do that. But then, so we put it on, we're watching Richard Pryor. And then he paused it, and then he went, do you think Richard Pryor moves around a lot? And I went, yeah, he's up and down all the time. He went, no, 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 no. He goes, watch it now. Now I've said that. And he played it. I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah. Richard Pryor moves around when he's telling the story. But as soon as he gets to the punchline, he stops dead. Drops the punchline. It goes, boom. Then yeah. he's on the move. Drops the tag. Boom. Then another punchline. Boom. And he's done that. But then it, then he stops. And each time he, he does that, he stops <laughs> dead. And I'm like, fuck, that is impressive. Like Dave Allen. Dave Allen oh, used to just master. sit there and him flicking the... It's been well documented. It's been talked about in all of his books and things like that. And him flicking the lint off of his trousers or just picking at it. Or 
Riley's yeah. telling a story, you're just gripped. And you're like, that is what, yeah. that, to have that gravitas when you're telling that story is, is just, you can't teach it. It's just instinctual. It's in you. And that, and yeah. I find all that fascinating. And it, the, the, the mechanics behind telling a joke or telling a story, yeah. I find, I find fascinating. And I'm always looking at that. When I'm watching comedians, I'm not necessarily laughing my head off. I'll go, like most comics, you'll go, that is a good structured joke. That's funny. And I, and yeah. that's what that's why you couldn't gig to comedians because we wouldn't laugh. But that doesn't mean we don't appreciate it. It doesn't mean yeah. we don't give a shit. It just yeah. means that we're like, that's a fucking good joke, that. Yeah, that's got <laughs> everything there. It all works. There's no fat on that. This is this, that, and that. Yeah, so... That's why yeah. watching all, you have to watch all these old, all the masters and go, yep. Even Bill Cosby, even though he ruined it by being a horrible sex offender, his early stuff, like The Ark, like Noah, is is <laughs> one of the best bits of comedy ever. That whole story is brilliant. No one had done that before. No one had broken down the story of Noah because yeah. it's always it always been Noah gets spoken to by God, and God goes, and Noah goes, oh yeah, all right, and I'll do that. They never spun it and gone what. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And it really upsets me that Cosby went on to do the things that he did because it's yeah. ruined it's it's ruined some beautiful historical uh comedy moments, you know, that they're yeah. just sullied by it now, you know, and it, and it it's a real shame. It's a real shame. Yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Uh you mentioned Dave Allen there, my absolute hero. Yeah. Um I recently thought about him. All these years I've been watching him and I did Fortunately, managed to get to see him live one time at the Strand. Jammy Git. In about 91. And it was the most amazing. I remember two things about that gig. One, that um, Josh Sacklin from The Bill was in the audience. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's one. And the other one is that I came away from that show with just the biggest smile on my face. And I think it must have lasted a week because it was just phenomenal. And one thing that only recently struck me is that he uh, he was a prop comedian. And you mentioned it there because... You got the glass to the side. You at one time you had a cigarette, at one time you had a scotch. Some oh, yeah. later, latterly, it was a glass of water. He's yeah. got the lint. He's got. He's picking at his nails. He's these are props while he's uh, being personable and talking, telling the story. And your attention is diverted away a little bit. Going, oh yeah, but there's a thing going on there. There's a thing going on there. No glass of water, and then but none of that is happening when he's delivering the. Yeah, punchline. yeah, yeah. You're right. Now he you might see- even sit forward in his seat. He's using the seat as a prop now. He'll yeah. sit forward to deliver. And it's like, he's doing props, but it's the subtlest prop comedy you've ever seen in your life. That is it. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. Because it's that, it's trying to portray that air of nonchalance. Like you're kind yeah. of just telling a story. You're, you're not worried about the fact that you're sat in front of a couple of hundred people or whatever, however many it was. You're just, yeah. you're just telling a story. And that's why things like a comedian leaning on the, on the, on the mic stand yeah. Or I've done it a couple of times. I'll be chatting and I'll take I'll take my jacket off and hang it on the thing. Or take my hat off and hang it on the mic stand. Or you're kind of just doing stuff. I went I went on with a cup of tea once and it was the, <laughs> one of the best gigs I've ever had. Because just like, a cup of tea in a proper cup. I think I had a saucer as well. And I'm just going on. I'm like, and I'm chatting away. I'm like, yeah, that, you remember that? You know, pointed with the saucer and just, yeah, yeah, so you're right. It's that, it, that, it kind of, yeah, it kind of lowers your guard a bit. You kind of yeah, for it's a sure. really interesting thing, isn't it? That yeah, by yeah. saying, by saying, by saying, by some of the, yeah, the best things are the things that are unsaid. 
Yeah. It's fascinating to me. It's, yeah. I, remember, I remember doing, when I was with my ex-partner, Jade, I remember doing her show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played a character called Pudding. And Pudding yeah. was supposed to be, Pudding started off as me, I was moving the props around. I was supposed to be moving stuff around on stage. Yeah. And, you know, it was based on those, you know, like in the theatre where, the, where they wear black, like the prop, the, the stagehands, all moving stuff around. Yeah. So it came to that. So I had this black morph suit on and I wasn't supposed to speak. And that taught me how to make people laugh. They couldn't see me. They couldn't hear me. And I had, all, I had, all I had was my physicality. And that's all I had. And it was a real, a really good lesson in how to make people laugh without relying on the things that you normally rely on. Yeah. So things like that, like the lint, like moving in your chair, the glass of uh, whiskey, that turned out to be champagne, didn't it? It was champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I read that in the, I can't remember which book it is, but it said it was champagne. Um, <laughs> all of that is so yeah. incredible. And again, you you don't you don't sit there going, I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to add this. I'm going to add that. It just happens. It's instinctual. And I find that fascinating, and that's that's why I like Bob Newhart when he's on the phone. He's doing like the he was the master of the one sided conversation, and yes. you knew what exactly he'd been asked, the questions that were coming at him, based on just based on how he was saying, what he was replying with, what he was saying uh, when he did Saul O'Reilly and and, and all of it. It's so clever. To, to, yeah. to, to be able to do that by getting the point across by not but without saying what the point is it's incredible and I, yeah. I will never I will never tire of looking into <laughs> it and finding out I think it's fascinating you mentioned there when you're playing a pudding essentially the silent stage yeah. hand uh, I'll tell you where my mind immediately went walking with wise oh yeah brown coats on moving the yeah. scenery yeah. think about uh, Shirley Bassey classic Christmas special sketch Yep. And they're working the crank handle and they're trying to be inconspicuous, but they're That's the it. most obvious thing in the set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, they, I mean, it's like that was, you know, do you remember the plank? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Eric Sykes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, um, was it Tommy Cooper? It was. I think he did it a couple of times. Yeah. Because it was Eric Sykes. Was it Eric Sykes and Tommy Cooper? Uh, or sorry, because yeah. Arthur Lowe did yeah. it. I can't remember who it was, but I think they did a couple of versions of it. But that... Being able yeah. to, to, like, the plank is hilarious, but they say nothing. <laughs> but when you go back and see, like, Buster Keaton or, you know, Harold Lloyd and all of those guys, like, they said nothing, but they were hilarious. Yeah, 100%. And, of course, the classic Charlie Chaplin and, and yeah, just all relying on just their, their, their movements. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's something. That's something else I was, I was thinking about, and maybe you can shed some light on this. There's a classic uh, trope of an Edinburgh show that about around the forty minute mark, you have to be a bit somber and a bit oh, <laughs> there's a tragedy, but it all works out. Here's the laugh at the end, and that, but yeah, that made me think about Chaplin because he had this incredible ability without words to make people laugh and cry. Yeah, in a twenty minute, uh, you know, a two reeler or you know, a feature like in the the kid for his first feature i mean it's yeah by today's standard it's tiny but it's so powerful it's one of my favorite movies weirdly it's the yeah. only one that really makes me cry still i'm 50 years old i still weep when i see the kid <laughs> and i started thinking well that's is that are we harking back now to lessons of many 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 years ago like a century ago and thinking oh well it's more powerful if you can make it a bit sad somewhere in the middle 
Well, I think Does that ring true. Do you think with Edinburgh? I don't know. I, I think Russell Kane was one of the first people to do what has now been now since become known as the dead dad, the dead dad story. And yeah. then having seen a few shows now up there, there is that there's a tragedy like someone's got cancer. And they either they either got, came out the other side, or sadly someone passed away. And there is that tragedy at that bit. And there is a, I think in somewhere like Edinburgh, it's now become you need a story, you need a proper story, proper show. Mm. Having been up there this this year, and I, the last couple of years, I've tried to do it, just doing. I'm just doing a funny show, a straight show. It's not enough. People want they want that extra thing. They want to be taken on this, for want of a better phrase, they want to be taken on a journey. Mm. Um, Sean Davis, I saw up in Edinburgh. Um, mm-hmm. It's about time. She even started sort of ten minutes in, and she even referenced that she goes about the sad bit. Yeah, and, like, and she did a sad bit in like sort of ten minutes in. So kind of so messing with the formula, if you like, and then the sad bit yeah. at, at the forty minute mark. I think a lot of it as well, because there is a structure to writing films that I've since found out about. Because I'm writing, a, I'm writing a film with a friend of mine, Ren. Uh, and she went to the New York uh, Film Academy. So she's writing some films. And I, we were just talking about an idea. And she just went, have you got any ideas? And I gave this idea. She went, right, this is a good idea. We're going we're gonna to work on this. It's on IMDb. So it's, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so having worked with her and read books on, on, it, on, the, on the, the structure of a film, it's always the same. Like the characters meet. They end up on a, they go on a thing. Then... There's that part of the there's that part of the film when all hope is lost. It's like this is it. It's all over. We're done for. But then suddenly yeah. it, it all kicks in and go. Actually, no, it's not the end. This has happened. And then there's a the bit where they storm <laughs> the castle, and then they're triumphant at the end. And that's the same structure for nearly every film that you've ever seen. And I think yeah. that's the same with Edinburgh shows. They have this it builds up like so. This is my dad, and he did this, and he did that, and he was a great man, and he blah 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 blah. But then, sadly, on this date, he found out he had cancer, and on that date, he passed away. Yeah, and that's your that's your that's your all hope is lost bit. And then that's at the forty minute mark. And then the last ten is then the triumphant. Mm. It's like, all right, he's gone, but he taught me all these wonderful things. He showed me what it is to be a better person, and I always want to be more like my dad. And blah blah blah. And that's the that's the storm in the castle bit, the the the, the triumphant ending. And I think that's. That's just how it's always been. And you can try and write a film that doesn't have that, but for some reason, sometimes they don't... Every every film you've seen, that even if you don't think he's got it, it's got it. Napoleon Dynamite is a perfect example of a film where you go, what the fuck? Why is this... This film doesn't... There's no reason for this film. It's just... Mm. you Suddenly, you're plonked down in the town where they live, and you're just seeing the people go about their day. And then, and then you leave, and it's still carrying on. Like there wasn't any. They, do you know what I mean? But there, but even then, when you look at it, really, there was the bit with Pedro. Vote for Pedro, and then the love interest, and then there was the uncle, Rico, and then there. there so there were even on that level, there were still elements of mm-hmm. that structure still there. Yeah, and so I think because it's such a it's such a great it's a it's it's a it, the formula works. It yeah. works every time. So, yeah. you know, it's up to you what you do within that framework. But and I think that's what's happened with the Edinburgh shows. It's kind of that framework works. And I think, and you do need something in Edinburgh or 
in festivals like that. Like everyone this year was ADHD or, or um, neurodiversity or they had a show about a specific thing. I think going up to these places like I did with just a funny show about mm. all manner of things, it just isn't enough, you know? They want more. And uh, yeah. I think, so I think it does follow that. I think it follows that same structure, like the movies. I think the, I think the Edinburgh show follows that same structure, which is really difficult to do for a comedy show. Yeah. I like the fact that, and you mentioned one, one case there, is that people now are trying to not subvert it, but sort of make that that concept that structural format part of the comedy of the show like i saw a show i think it might have been in leicester this year can't remember i wish i could remember who it was and my apologies if they hear this that i don't remember who it was but they started it with a timer to count down to get to the <laughs> the sad bit yeah. <laughs> i thought this is brilliant <laughs> you know it's coming we're, we're getting oh. it we're five minutes away guys we're five minutes from the sad bit that's great you know? I loved it. It was so clever, and you know, <laughs> just just literally taking that idea and then say, "Well, let's let's use let's make that much much bigger thing from the start, from the outset, yeah. and just keep pointing at it." That's it. You're trying to find your version of the same thing. Yeah. And again, you're still working within the framework. It's just that you're kind of showing people behind the curtain, going, "Right, you know what's going to happen. You've seen enough of these now, so this yeah. bit is going to be coming up." Richard Hardesty did a bit as well. He was talking about how to write, write the show is really difficult. He says, no, the, you know, the end's got to go at the end, the beginning at the beginning. He goes, if you get those around the wrong way, and then he did a bit, and you go, <laughs> it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I, I, when I was doing a, a preview of my, my latest show, yeah. I was at MacFest in, in uh, McCuntleth in Wales, and yeah. I got into a bit of material. I was, I was sort of 20 minutes in, and I got into a bit of material, and I went, oh, no, no, no. And I'd stop, I've got the recording. I stopped the show and go, wait, I can't get into this bit because this thing goes into the really good joke and this really good joke needs to go at the end. So I just need you to just bear with <laughs> until the end. And this is a really good joke and I know you're going to like it. It's just it's just that it needs to go at the end. So I'm going to have to stop this bit of material, go on with another bit. And then and then when I got to that bit, I, look, I remember I'd, st- I'd said to my, I can't, was it something in the front row I with my partner, Kate? And I just went, I went, how long have I done? And they went, you've got five minutes. I went, oh shit, I need to do the funny joke. And it went into it. And it was, and so people were, they were ready for it. So yeah, when you, when you can do it, it's funny. It is funny. And uh, I'd like to do more of that. I think. Yeah. Subvert, the, subvert it a bit. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great concept. Great idea. Yeah. Well, um, you've mentioned uh, earlier on about, you know, pacing and not wanting to make phone calls. And it's very much like myself, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I've said on this podcast before that I walk around for two hours just before doing the interview. This is the easy part. Really? Because you're doing the comedy. Yeah, I get super nervous. I'll be honest, it's very much easier to talk to you, though. I was a second we know each other, so that must sort of take the edge off a bit. So Yeah, I only pace for one hour before. <laughs> <laughs> just wear out one pair of shoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to walk around one circle and then I have to go out the other way to wear the other shoe out. Keep it even. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So anxiety is the question. Mm. Now you you know obviously you've mentioned it about it. Do you are you now as nervous before going on stage now as you were ten, twelve, eighteen years ago? Um, there's still there's still nerves. I think I think you have to have them. I think it's important because I I found if I'm too confident before a gig, if I'm too calm, I don't tend to have as good a gig. If I'm like, oh, this is fine. I tend to, it's not as good. But a little bit of apprehension 
doesn't hurt. I don't. It's not like it used to be. When I first started, I was that first gig. There was a woman sat in the front row. I was at the side of the stage. I was pacing up and down, and a woman she leaned over and she went, "Are you all right?" And I'm like, <laughs> "I'm, I am absolutely shitting myself." And she just went, "Yeah, I can see." She goes, "You're going to have a heart attack. You need to chill out a little bit." And I was glugging vodka Red Bulls. She's like, "You're gonna, you're gonna die, mate. You need to chill out." <laughs> Because uh, I was so petrified of doing what I'm doing. It kept me awake. Yeah, that's how nervous I was about it. I couldn't. It was awful. And as you go on, I remember the, the, the turning point for me was, again, uh, Marilyn that I mentioned earlier. Uh, she booked me because she was running up the creek in Croydon. She booked me for a corporate for B&Q. And she just went, <laughs> right, you're going to MC it. I mean, I have, that, I'd never MC'd in my life. I was like, I, what are you talking about? She went, you're going to MC it. And you're going to smash it and stop mucking around. You're going to have to do it because of that pressure. It. I remember being on, and it just worked. It just worked. And I remember looking at her, and she and she could just see my eyes were all big, and I'm like, "Fucking hell, it's working! It's one of the best gigs I've ever done." <laughs> and that's how I got into comparing. Work. That's how I got into MCing. Yeah, but that was a turning point when that when you have that first gig like that, and you go, "Oh, I can do it." Oh, okay. That's that's, and that kind of spurs you on, gives you a bit more confidence. But now, it's more, it's more like, is this going to be the one where I eat shit? Am I going to eat shit tonight? Because that's 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 going to happen to every com- every comedian you've ever heard of down the ages. Every single one through the, <laughs> through the 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 passages of time, they've all died on their ass, and they will die on their ass again. It's yeah. just it's just that the gaps in between the deaths become longer. If you if you're any good at it, it's it's you're always round the corner is a death, and it, and when it happens, it, you get better at handling it now because you kind of go, look, I know I can do it, I know this material works. Something's gone on yeah. tonight. They don't like me, or it just isn't. I'm not I'm not delivering it right. There's something off with my chemistry. We're not gelling as a as a group, and so it's off. But mm. it so it's I get I get, you know what I get nervous if it's a, if it's a, a gig I've not done before. Yeah. Or if it's quite a rowdy gig, I'm like, ah, just because I know because of what I sound like, very easy for me when it's a rowdy gig. It's very easy for me to slip into that oh, fuck and get a little bit laddie and like, Bleh. and it, <laughs> and I don't want to do that. I want to I want to just have a laugh, and so I get a bit I get a bit edge I get a bit on edge about that. It's not necessarily nerves. I can do it. I know I can do it now. It's like yeah. imposter syndrome comes up all the time. People talk about that, and you go, yeah, yeah. For a good few years, there's a bit of you going, any minute now, someone's going to come up and say, you're not doing it anymore. You've been getting away with this. Um, mm-hmm. But it was Simon, big Simon at the comedy store. And um, and he said to me, it was, it was a Thursday night. I'd only done the comedy store a couple of times. And I went out and I was a bit nervous because it's the comedy store. So, you know, everyone wants to do yeah. the comedy store. It was, that's like your mecca. Like if I get to play the comedy store, this is amazing. And so I got the first act on and I went in the green room and he came through. And I remember him saying, he goes, Rich, right, we haven't booked you as a favour, right? No one's doing charity work here. We have booked you because you can do this. We've booked you because you're good at it. You're good enough to play the comedy store. Stop fucking around and get on with it. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, because he could see I was nervous. And it just, yeah. it just, a switch went on like that. I went, yeah, people aren't doing you a favour by booking you. They book you because they know you can do the job. Yeah. And so... That just changed everything, and now I'm 18 years in, and I'm like, yeah, I've earned my place. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't feel 
I'm not arrogant, but it's not imposter syndrome anymore. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I have the things I've gone through to get where I am. I've earned yeah. all that. So that's so the nerves have kind of settled. Um, I get, yeah, yeah, I don't really get, yeah, it's not nervous, but it's apprehension. Am I going to eat shit tonight? That's more like it. <laughs> have you had a night where you just died on your ass, but managed to come away thinking, I've learned something important? Now? Every death is a, is a lesson. You get more from the, it's been said a, many, a million times, I imagine, but you get more from the bad ones than the good ones. Um, right. It's the, when you first start out and you have, and you die, you think you're the only one that's ever died. And everyone's, no one, no one knows how to talk to you in the green room. Everyone's a bit, you, you're always in your head. They, go, they, they think you're, a, they think you're a prick. You're like, ah, oh, everyone hates me. I just need to go on. But really, if you come off and just go, fucking hell, did you see that? That was awful. <laughs> Have a laugh about it. People go, yeah, it was awful. <laughs> but that just comes with that just comes with time, you know. Um, with every gig, every single gig, you come away going, that could have been better. I could have handled that more. That's why when when people heckle you, and you come back with a zinger, you go boom, right, and it and it just smashes the room, and people go, wow, how did he do that? That was off the top of his head. They don't realise that a year before. A very similar heckle came your way and you didn't know how to handle it, but you were driving home and you went, ah, I should have said that. And then a year later, someone else did it and you go, boom. And they go, ah, genius. You've been sitting <laughs> on that for a year. <laughs> so you learn you learn something from every every gig. If you're yeah. really interested in it, you learn something from every gig, good or bad. And yeah. having... Really good death stories is what comedians want. That will bond you in a green room. That will bring you all together. That will make yeah. that will get more respect out of your fellow comedians than a, than you going, I'll oh, roof that. Oh, yeah, I'll roof that. I'll roof that. If you yeah. go, fucking hell, I was in Guildford the other day. They were throwing chairs <laughs> at me and they were doing this, doing that. You know, it, it, That's a better story. <laughs> Having a good death story is brilliant. <laughs> I saw a show at Edinburgh Festival. I can't remember when it went again. Like most things, I can't remember when, when it was or who it was. But there was a show called, um, I think it was Comedy Death or something. Right. It basically, it was a, it was a, you might be aware of this. It was a host brought on four or five people and said, just tell us about your worst day on stage. <laughs> The day you die. It was just fascinating stories. I love it. Exactly. No one wants to hear about when you got carried out of the room on the shoulders of the audience. They want to hear about the time you had to leave through the back door. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's what you want to hear about. You can hear the second part of this interview with Rich Wilson in the next episode, cleverly entitled Rich Wilson Part 2. I love talking to the people in and around comedy and I hope if you're listening to this, do you like listening to what they have to say as much as I do. So until the next episode, please like, comment, subscribe, rate and share. Until then, thanks for listening.